All right, well, we're going to dive right in this morning. So if you want to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, that's where we're going to be spending our time today. Matthew 16 and verses 1 through 12. One of my New Year's resolutions, or as I said, uh, planned behavioral changes is to finish uh, the Gospel of Matthew in this calendar year. I figure if we've gotten through 15 chapters in one year, we can get through the rest of them this year, and uh, we're going to start making a dent in that today. Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 to 12. It's a reminder of Matthew's purpose. He wants us to see that Jesus is the King who reigns over the kingdom of heaven, which consists of disciples from all nations who obey all that He has commanded. And so this morning, again, we find ourselves in chapter 16, verses 1 to 12. And as you have that passage open before you, we read these words. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand, and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand, and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow and pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the the clarity of your word. As we come before you, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. It's our prayer that uh, as the Holy Spirit takes the words that are written on the pages in front of us and applies them to our hearts that we might see more of Jesus and be transformed into His image. We pray to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I came across an incredibly provocatively titled article online this past week entitled, Six Ways to Look Godly While Not Growing in Your Faith in 2020. And if you clicked on that link on the Gospel Coalition, many of you probably did, you would have found six pieces of advice to help you look godly while not actually growing in your faith. Number one, give away your margin and mention it in passing. You say to your friends, I can't really go on a family vacation this year. We've given far too much of our money away. Number two, turn up to every third church monthly prayer meeting because one out of three isn't bad. Number three, get a really busy job. Nice, convenient excuse not to get involved in the church that you attend. Number four, focus on the speck in your left eye so you can ignore the plank in your right. As long as you're dealing with the small sins, who who cares to worry about the larger ones? 
Number five, talk radical, decide easy, because after all, people only evaluate you based on your words. And number six, tell people you'll pray for them and then don't, because really it's the thought that counts. Six ways to look godly while not growing in your faith. This all reminded me of the book that the elders are reading as a group, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, in which Mark Dever, the author, kind of comments that he had intended to write a book for pastors entitled How to Get Fired and Fast. So in the spirit of these sort of provocative titles with my tongue squarely in my cheek, I want to talk to you this morning about two ways that you can miss Jesus. If you're here this morning trying to avoid Jesus, if you'd like to miss Jesus this morning, good news, I have two pieces of advice for you to completely and utterly miss Jesus. Now, of course, you can tell the sarcasm. I want you to get Jesus, and so these are things to avoid, not things to pursue. But nevertheless, in the passage in front of us, what we have is nothing short of two ways to completely miss Jesus. We have two different groups of people. We have the Pharisees and Sadducees on the one hand and the disciples on the next. Each group represents one way that you and I might miss Jesus today. On the one hand, in the Pharisees and Sadducees, we have what I will call sign-seeking unbelief. Sign-seeking unbelief. As they come to Jesus to test him, asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Jesus replies to them in verse 4, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. They've completely missed Jesus. On the other hand, in the group of men known as the disciples in verses 5 to 12, we have a completely different way to miss Jesus, and this is what we might call forgetful faith. Forgetful faith. As Jesus rebukes them by saying, verse 9, do you not remember? There are two ways to miss Jesus. We might miss Jesus through sign-seeking unbelief. We also might miss Jesus through forgetful faith. I really want to help you avoid both of these errors this morning. And what we want to do is begin by looking at sign-seeking unbelief at the beginning of chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. If you'll look with me at verse 1, uh, again, this is what we read, the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. What is so immediately striking about this verse is that there are two groups of people that you wouldn't expect to see together unified in just about any way in first century Israel. It would have been the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They went together like oil and water. There's a bit of, of the friend of my friend is, an, is my enemy, uh, or the enemy of my enemy, rather, is my friend going on in their unholy alliance, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees in this day and age are known predominantly as the self-righteous religionists. They're the people that like good moral teaching and nothing more and nothing less. The Sadducees, on the other hand, might be known as the rationalists, the skeptics of the day. The, it's a dad joke as old as Sunday school itself to say that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, and so they're sad, you see. So we have the self-righteous Pharisees and the rational Sadducees both coming together, though they are opponents, always vying for leadership and control over Israel, to oppose Jesus, who presents a threat to both of them. 
They would rather not cede any of their power, any of their authority, any of their grip over the religious life of the people of their day. And so they come together with Jesus against Jesus because, as I said, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. It's a bit like all of us, I would imagine, at least most of us here in this room this morning, are celebrating that the Ravens lost yesterday in the playoffs. I certainly am. It's always a good day when the fake Browns lose. And I'm sure you feel the exact same way. You might not consider them the fake Browns, but nevertheless, it's a good day when the Ravens lose. We can all agree on that, right? So, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And they approach Jesus here, and they ask him for a sign. The key is to test him. To test him. Now, before we even begin to analyze what it is that they're asking, I just want us to see that the motivation for their question is to test him. What Jesus is addressing here is not the sort of, you know, routine doubts that we have from time to time as Christian people. That's normal. I I dare to say it's even healthy at times to have doubts and to address those doubts in light of the Scriptures. But here, these people come to Jesus to test Him. In other words, they, they already don't believe in Jesus. They have no desire to believe in Jesus. This isn't a genuine question. This is a challenge. It's a challenge. In an article written in the New Yorker not very long ago, a study was uh, recounted where 25 students at Stanford were given pairs of suicide notes. On the one hand, there were suicide notes that were genuine, that had really been written, and others that had just been sort of drawn up for the study. And they put all of these, these notes in pairs before students, and students were supposed to guess which one was real. At the end of the study, they told one group that they had gotten 24 out of the 25 pairs correct. Of course, they hadn't really gotten that number correct. That's just what they were told. On the other hand, the other group of students was told that they only got 10 out of the 25 correct. Again, this wasn't the actual number. They were just told that. Really, the study was meant to determine whether people would change their views in light of the facts. And so they told these students, you know, neither of these groups got the numbers that correct or that wrong, but just generally, how do you think you fared? And it showed that the people who were told they did well believed that they were above average when they weren't, and the people who were told that they did poorly were below average even though they weren't. And the conclusion of the people who performed the study was this, once formed, impressions are remarkably perseverant. In other words, people are stubborn and bullheaded. And that's exactly what we see here in the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Once formed, impressions are incredibly perseverant. Here's a group of people who are settled against Jesus, and they ask him for a sign to test him. Now, if you're reading this or hearing this, and you think to yourself, I feel like I've seen this movie before, it's because you have. And for many of us, you've seen this movie this morning. Because isn't this wonderful The previous time that something like this comes up is in Matthew chapter 12, which is one of the readings in the Machine reading plan for today. So those of you who are doing the plan will remember that back in chapter 12 of of Matthew's Gospel, right after Jesus has healed a man who's demon-oppressed, and the people begin to wonder, is this the son of David? The Pharisees claim, no, this Jesus only casts out demons by the devil himself. And then they come to him in verse 38 of chapter 12, And they say, teacher, the Pharisees, we wish to see a sign from you. Funny that. He's just shown them a sign. He's just cast out a demon. 
Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And here, in the context of chapter 16, this request to see a sign from Jesus comes on the heels of Jesus feeding the 4,000, comes on the heels of Jesus walking on water, comes on the heels of Jesus feeding the 5,000, and comes on the heels of a whole litany of different miracles and exorcisms and healings performed by Christ. We wish to see a sign from heaven. This is a real spiritual disease, and it's sign-seeking unbelief. The way that this works is, the person who is diagnosed with sign-seeking unbelief would rather continue to demand evidence than do the hard work of looking into her heart and realizing the claims of Jesus upon her are true. It is far easier to put up the smokescreen that God has not made Himself clear than it is to bow in repentance and faith before Jesus the Lord and Messiah. Here's a group of men who absolutely refuse to believe in Jesus despite all of the evidence, and they have the audacity to come before Him and ask for more. There's a subtle accusation here. You haven't made yourself clear. You haven't proven yourself to be who you say that you are. You need to give us some more stuff. Do another one of those miracles with the bread. Get back on the water and walk on it for a minute. Sing, dance, jump. Jesus, I'm in control, not you. But here's the problem. If you're suffering from this sign-seeking unbelief that demands Jesus show you more than He already has, what you fail to recognize is that Jesus actually doesn't need you. That might sound harsh, but it's absolutely true. Jesus doesn't need you. Jesus doesn't need anybody. In actual fact, you need Him. Jesus does not need you. You need Him. And so I want you to carefully examine the response of Jesus to this absolute settled skepticism that claims you have not made yourself clear. Show us another sign in order to test Him as if they don't believe He's able to do what they request. His comment is simple. In the words of William Taylor, who's the pastor of St. Helens Bishopsgate in downtown London, absolute gospel juggernaut, Jesus simply says to them, fine, I'll take my business elsewhere. I'll take my business elsewhere. Look at what He says. When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. Now, he's operating in the realm of meteorology. You're able to tell the way that the weather is going to turn up simply by looking at the sky. I don't know anything about meteorology. I took a class on it in high school. I'm sure you can imagine how much I retained. I do wish that I could have predicted winds last night because I would have called my neighbor and said, you know, your car alarm is going to go off at 3.30 in the morning. It's going to be as loud as can be. I was having a dream that somebody was controlling a remote control police car. And I woke up to... So I would have definitely called him and told him. But I'm told that there's a phrase, a saying that says, um, red sky at night, sailor's delight. Red sky in the morning, sailor's warning. Right? We are able to tell the way that the weather is going to turn up simply by looking at the sky. And Jesus says, you have the ability, friends, to do that. Pharisees and Sadducees, you're able to look at the weather and predict the way that it's going to turn up. 
And yet you refuse to look at all that I've done and all that I'm doing and come to the right conclusion about who I am. What more can be done for you? You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Why? Is it not, according to Jesus, that they are an evil, sinful, separated from the living God, and adulterous, unfaithful in their covenant relationship with the God of Israel? Generation. Their sign-seeking is an indictment on their hearts. They do not come in a genuine desire to know Jesus and to follow Him and to bow before Him. They come to test Him, to trap Him, to show He's false, that this is not the Messiah. Jesus says, do you not seek a sign because you are evil and adulterous? So what will I give to you? He says, no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now again, following on the heels of our reading from this morning in the Meshane plan, Jesus tells us what the sign of Jonah is, and it's so rich. In the context of all that's happening here with this sign-seeking unbelief, the sign of Jonah is so rich. The first time that the Pharisees asked Jesus for a sign, He replies in verse 39 of chapter 12, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You know Jonah, the prophet. We studied that book together not that long ago. I guess it was over a year ago at this point. But Jonah, thrown overboard into the water as good as dead, buried as he swallowed up into the belly of the great fish, resurrected, chapter 2, verse 17, as he's vomited, one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament, vomited up onto dry land, dead, buried, resurrected. And here Jesus says, the only sign you'll be given is the sign of Jonah. Now we might conclude that then the sign of Jonah is the resurrection. If you really want to know that Jesus is who he says he is, just await the empty tomb. For 2,000 years people have been trying to turn up a body and they haven't. But notice what Jesus says in chapter 12 here about what the sign of Jonah is. It certainly involves the resurrection of Christ. But then in verse 41, he says, the men of Nineveh, the Gentiles, the pagans, people used to refer to them as the lip rippers. They terrorized people. They tore off their lips. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Why? For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. What is the sign of Jonah? It is the preaching of the resurrected Christ. It is the Word of God. What Jesus is saying is, you will be given no sign, but you will hear the sound of my voice. If you will not believe what I have to tell you, you will not believe even if someone rises from the dead. As a matter of fact, that's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in the Gospel of Luke. Sign-seeking unbelief, always weighing the evidence, never concluding. Jesus says, what more can be done for you? The dead are raised, the sick are healed, the demons are cast out. Why will you not believe? I do not need you. You need me. 
It's not as if I'm going to change my sort of program in order to cater to your sign-seeking unbelief. I'm not a genie in a bottle. Believe. And again, I say to you, it is far easier to remain in this sign-seeking unbelief than it is to actually examine my heart and bow before Jesus and His claims. Because if all of the evidence is true, and it is, then when Jesus says repent and believe, He's not giving you suggestions or principles for living. He's giving you commands. I am the Lord. Repent. Believe. Follow Me. Far easier to say, you know, I'm just not, I'm not clear yet. need another miracle, Jesus. Than it is to face the music. Separated from the living God on account of my sin. Brought near only through the death and resurrection of Jesus in my place. Called to take up my cross and follow Him daily. Sign-seeking unbelief. If you, if you want to miss Jesus, simply ask for another sign. There's a second way, a more acceptable Christian way to completely miss Jesus in this passage, and it's the way of the disciples, their forgetful faith. In verse 5, there's a transition, isn't there, from the Pharisees and the Sadducees to the disciples. Jesus has left the Pharisees and Sadducees. He's departed from them. And in verse 5, we read, when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Presumably, Jesus had gotten into a boat with them and they'd gone to the other side of the sea. And they're really stirred up in the moment about the fact that they've, they've brought no bread along with them. They've packed no lunch. Their stomachs are getting a little grumbly. And so are their mouths. Because in verse 6, Jesus says to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began immediately discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. Uh-oh. Jesus is upset with us because we forgot to pack lunch. He doesn't want us to go to the Pharisees and Sadducees to buy bread. They put something weird in it. They've got some weird kind of leaven. They're operating strictly on the physical. If I said to you, you need to watch out for Taco Bell and the meat that they put in their, their tacos, you know exactly what I mean because I would be talking about it. You should not eat Taco Bell. I'm sorry. Sorry, but not sorry. It's disgusting. But Jesus is not simply operating on the physical. He's, he's trying to teach them a deeper truth that as a believer in Jesus, as a disciple of Jesus, you too must be on guard against sign-seeking unbelief. Jesus is trying to do exactly what Paul commands Timothy to do from last week, point out false teaching. But this, is, this passage hit me like a ton of bricks this week. Because what Jesus essentially says to the disciples is, look guys, huddle up. Come here. Come here. Come here. Here's some bickering about, you know, Peter, you forgot the, the lunch. No, that was James. No, it's probably Judas. He ate it on the way. Everybody huddle up. Come here, guys. I'm trying to give you a 10-minute sermon on chapter 16, 1-4. to Yeah? I'm trying to give you a little bit, a little ditty on the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. But you're so forgetful and so obtuse that I've got to take you all the way back to chapter 14. And then by way of chapter 14, we've got to stop in chapter 15 because I need to revisit with you the feeding of the 5,000 and then the feeding of the 4,000. You actually can't hear what I'm trying to tell you about the way that you're supposed to live your life today 
because you've forgotten what I did yesterday. I'm going to say that again. You're actually unable to hear what I'm trying to tell you about how you're supposed to live today because you've completely forgotten what I did yesterday. i got to go back to the basics because you've forgotten. O oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Are you still that dull? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? we got 12 baskets of leftovers. Do you not remember the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? we got five baskets left over there. What Jesus is doing is He's saying, guys, if the problem is bread, listen, I can handle bread. We can do bread. You've seen me do bread. Right? Twice. What are you worried about? Did you forget? And what's actually at play when Jesus feeds the 5,000 and feeds the 4,000 is He's showing, like Moses, who fed the people of Israel in the wilderness, that He is the Deliverer. He is the Savior with abundant blessings for those who come to Him in faith. But these guys can't get to watch out for false teaching because they're stuck. They're stuck. Here it is, guys. I'm going to put it as plain as I, can, as I can. If you are so focused on today and your felt needs today, you're actually going to be useless today. That's exactly what's happening with the disciples. So focused on felt needs today, they're actually useless today. they got nothing to offer today. They can't hear Jesus, obey Jesus, walk with Jesus today because they're so focused on today. Jesus says, you've got to remember what I did for you. Don't you remember the grace that I showed when I fed 5,000 Israelites with 12 baskets left over, 4,000 Gentiles with baskets left over? I can provide for all of your needs. You've forgotten the Gospel so you can't hear what I'm trying to tell you today. The application should be so obvious, it's not even worth... I mean, when things are that obvious, they're worth restating. Friends, if we forget the Gospel, if we are so focused on what does Jesus want me to do today, give me something to do, we're actually going to be useless in the doing of those things. We're actually unable to hear what Jesus wants from us today if we can't look back and see what Jesus did for us yesterday. As Christian people, we have three days that are important all the time. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. You say, you went to seminary for that? You bet your bottom dollar I went to seminary for that. Yesterday, what did Jesus do for me in the Gospel? Today, how am I going to serve Jesus in light of that Gospel today? And tomorrow, when is Jesus coming back? Those are my three days. I was talking to a mentor the other day on the phone, this guy named Jeff Mills, godliest person I know. I know I've mentioned him before. Kelly was in the car. I was on the phone with him just talking about frustrations and my own soul and, and things like that. And he, in classic form, he said, you know, Mike, the only thing that's surprising here and all that you're sharing with me is that you don't still work at Bob Evans. Now, that might not... That might just sound insulting. I mean, it's kind of insulting, but it was super encouraging because 
See, to you, you think, Bob Evans, man, that's, that's just kind of like a dirty restaurant. And what is Mike going to do? Is he going to blast every restaurant in the area in the sermon? Well, maybe. Not Chipotle, but most of the others. So Bob Evans, to you, might just be like a dirty restaurant where you can get you know, breakfast. For me, for me, that was the last job I had before I got converted. And so what Jeff is saying is, Mike, the only thing surprising here is that you're going to heaven. What are you worried about? What happened yesterday? What are you worried about today for? Look at what Jesus did yesterday. He was graciously reminding me, Mike, if you want to be of any use to your family, to your church, to your community, you better remember That's why the communion service is about remembering Jesus. That's why Paul in Colossians tells the believers, remember, remember at one time you were separated. That's why Peter in 2 Peter says, I'm trying to stir you up by way of reminder. Loved ones, beware of novelty. Someone comes to you with new teaching that hasn't been around for 2,000 years. Somebody comes to you with teaching that doesn't come from a dusty, tattered Bible. It's probably not true. Remember. That's where you were. But Jesus is so gracious. And only by remembering that will you be useful today. There's this sort of tendency to think, gosh, if we just constantly remind ourselves of the Gospel, if we only think of the Gospel, we'll never serve our community. We'll never be of any use. Baloney! The opposite's true. If we don't constantly sit at the feet of Jesus and hear, I provide for you. I'm gracious to you. I've forgiven your sins. Your soul is going to heaven. You belong to me. If we stop hearing that, that's the moment we lose any usefulness. Can't even obey Jesus today if we don't remember what He did yesterday. Do you see that? Why are you so concerned about bread? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? I'm trying to give you 16, 1-4. I'm trying to point out to you the problem of self, or I'm sorry, sign-seeking unbelief, but I'm having to deal with your forgetful faith. Remember, Jesus says. And then once you've done that, you're not off the hook. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Beware of this leaven, this works through the dough, and man doesn't work through the dough. It's all over the place. As we lay out our fleeces, asking the Lord to show us one more time, one more time, just a little bit more evidence. Show me you love me. Show me you care. And in response, Jesus says, if you want to know how much I love you, Charlie Dates, pastor in the city of Chicago. Kendall sent me the sermon, one of the best sermons I've heard ever. Charlie Dates, if you want to know how much I love you, Jesus says, look at the cross. Remember. As there are two ways that you and I might miss Jesus this morning. I'm trying to put them forward so that we avoid both of them. The first one is just always... Always weighing the evidence, but never concluding. Always hearing God's Word, yet never believing. 
come to Jesus. You don't have tomorrow guaranteed. How do you know that Jesus won't leave you and depart? He doesn't need you. You need Him. Come to Him. And the other way, again, I say the more respectable Christian way is just to forget all that He's done for us in Christ. Mike, aren't you glad you're not still slinging biscuits at Bob Evans? Aren't you glad you're not still sitting at the feet of skeptics at Kent State University? Aren't you glad that you're not still hanging out in bars and smoky rooms? Aren't you glad that your name is written in the book of life? All right, Mike. Better look out for that leaven. Better start obeying him today. Because he provided for and bought you yesterday. What a joy this morning to be able to see a husband and a wife profess before the watching world and all who cares to know that Jesus is Lord. And in that moment, friends, in that moment, in just a few minutes, you and I have the opportunity to visually remember that in the Gospel we died to our sin and we were raised to newness of life. My prayer for us as a church is that as we remember all that Jesus has done for us in the Gospel, that we would be the most obedient, holy, mission-minded people this county has ever seen. Remember. Lord, thank You. Thank You so much for Your gracious and kind reminders. Remember when I had the few loaves of bread and 5,000 went away fed, 12 baskets gathered up, or the 4,000 and the seven baskets gathered up. Remember when I saved you from your sin? Remember when I called you to myself? Remember that you're accepted? And so now, I call you to obey. Father, we, we joke, but we do not want to miss Jesus. The exact opposite. We want more of Jesus. So save us from these dangers. Sign-seeking unbelief and forgetful faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.